Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. the Victim Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about language and rape culture. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today, I have returning two of our amazing interns. So to start off, I have Miles Pula-Ur. Miles uses he, him pronouns and is one of our therapy interns at the Victim Service Center. So Miles is originally from Thailand, where he received a BA in English and worked as an English as a second language teacher before deciding to move to the U.S. to further his education. In 2019, he received a Master's of Arts in Applied Linguistics from Columbia University in the city of New York, where he developed his passion for the relationship between language and mind. Currently, he's pursuing his Master's of Arts in Clinical Mental Health Counseling at Rollins College, where he is also pursuing a certification in marriage and family therapy. So Miles, thanks for coming back onto the podcast. Happy to have you. Well, thank you for having me again. <laughs> Absolutely. And I also have returning Nicola Pritchard. So Nicola uses she, her pronouns and graduated from the University of Florida with her Bachelor of Science in Psychology. She is one of VSC's advocacy interns and is currently a graduate student in the Master's of Social Work program at the University of Central Florida. In her first year at UCF, Nicola interned at Children's Advocacy Center Osceola working with families of children who had experienced abuse. After graduating, she plans on becoming a licensed clinical social worker and intends to continue working with individuals who have experienced trauma. In her free time, Nicola likes to read, cook, and play the piano. So Nicola, thank you as well for coming back onto the podcast. Thank you for having me again. I'm very excited for this episode. I'm really excited as well. I love that we're going to be able to bring some of the uh, master's uh, program that you did, uh, Miles, into this with linguistics, not to put you on the spot, but I'm really excited (laughs) that you're going to be coming from a linguistics perspective, as well as a therapist perspective with um, working with individuals with trauma. And of course, Nicola um, coming at it from a social work perspective and a psychology perspective. Um, As a really brief introduction, you know, on this podcast, we have discussed how our 
culture, including things like media, the news, movies, music, the way we respond to disclosures, the justice system, all those things and more can affect the way we actually view sexual violence and ultimately cause rape to continue existing. So today we will be discussing specifically how language and the way we talk about rape as a society on an interpersonal level in the news and etc can contribute to rape culture and ways we can actually mindfully change the language we use to help end sexual violence. So with that, I know I do this a lot on this podcast, but I think it's always good to kind of start off with a definition of rape culture before we dive in. So I'd love to hear from both of you. How would you actually define rape culture? Um, so rape culture, um, I think it's it's really hard to come up with like a um, comprehensive definitions, right? And I think like for, for, for certain people, for different people, the, the definition of rape cultures can be different. But to me is, I think it's, it's, it's the cultures where, where we have certain, certain ideologies that associate with rapes, right? We, we usually associate with, with the victimization of rape, um, sexual assault victims. We also associate that with, with, when we talk about rape, for example, we, we usually think of like the perpetrator usually t- supposed to be men. For example, um, we think about um, that the, the perpetrator usually is someone that is total strangers, right? We like we talk about that. I think that's that's kind of something that that um, <clears throat> evolves around rape cultures in general. In in general, um, of course, we can go on to the specific of of the, the represent, representation of of rape in media, in movies, TV shows, or even news. Um, and we often see one side of those representation and, and all of this can be considered rape cultures as well. And that's one of the aspects. Yeah, what I'm hearing is that rape myths are these commonly held ideas that we believe to be true, but are actually are false definitely contribute to rape culture. And and also, you know, the the message that ties with rape, right? That it's a taboo thing. It's we don't talk about that. It's something that to be ashamed of or anything like that. Of course, it's not a positive thing to be celebrated, but but also, you know, we we tend to have a lot of message ties around rape that can be prob- problematic in terms of when we have to talk about and advocate and and and, and advocate for, for for survivors or victims or people who experience such experience. Absolutely, I think um, what I'm hearing is it's the silence almost around it contributes to it in general because since we don't talk about it. People um, don't know who to reach out to for help. And then we also don't honor individuals who do need help. Um, So it just kind of contributes to the overall climate of it. And then we can't help prevent it from happening. So we can't even help the people who need the help. For example, if someone falls outside of the common script in our head of this is what sexual assault looks like. 
um, men can't be survivors, even though we very well know that anyone could be a survivor of sexual violence. But this rape myth makes it very difficult or, or a barrier, perhaps, for uh, us as a society to believe survivors when they come forward, and then also for survivors to find that assistance. So we can't help the survivors. And then if we don't talk about it, we don't learn how to help prevent it. Um, Nicola, would you also agree with that definition or do you have any other kind of points as far as rape culture? I think everything that's been mentioned has been great. I think the way that I think of rape culture is kind of the environment in which rape is minimized, normalized, but also denied in a way because there's so many, and if you think of one example is there was, I think we've actually talked about this in the office, but there was an article about how um, rape isn't normalized on college campuses. And then the article went on to say how, you know, no one thinks that rape is good. No one thinks that someone jumping out of an alley and beating you and doing these horrible things is good, but it didn't address any other forms of rape or sexual assault. And to me, that just shows how normalized that is, is because when they said, oh, rape is normalized on college campuses, what they heard was that usual script of rape, of the extreme violence, um, physical violence, is what they thought people were saying is normalized, but that's just because it's so normalized, they didn't even recognize the other forms of rape and sexual violence that nobody considers that. So that to me is a perfect example of rape culture is that it minimized violence, it denied the violence occurs and it, yeah, just makes it kind of a normalized thing in society. Yeah, I think that that's a great way to put it. Um, it other pieces to it too can be just a misunderstanding of consent in general. Um, and then since we don't teach people about consent early on about, you know, how to not abuse people, we instead maybe teach people to, you know, oh, well, if you weren't wearing that, that wouldn't have happened. Or if you didn't go out late at night, that wouldn't have happened. So this victim blaming kind of piece to it as well adds to the that environment you were talking about. And Rape culture is so, so complicated um, and it is really hard to define. It's interesting because every time I come up to this question, I'm like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll just define rape culture. I've been talking about this for years. Every time I feel like I come at it with a different perspective or a different angle because it's like this big idea that's really hard to kind of pinpoint. Um, but essentially, I think that using the word environment is a great way to describe it, where it's just this environment that fosters um, and encourages sexual violence almost, and then just helps create barriers, I should say, for survivors to get help, and then creates barriers for society in general to tackle sexual violence as a problem that we need to solve. Um, are there any other specific examples that you wanted to kind of bring up before we dive into kind of the language and linguistics piece of it? Not necessarily. I think like Nicola hit the nail on the head that, you know, that the coaches were minimizing the, the severity of rape. Um, and I think like uh, actually we'll, we'll have to give credits to Nicola 
for for come up with the topic today, right? For this episode, because um, even though I I was a linguist, I'm actually kind of still is interested in languages, but um, and actually this kind of topic is actually on my wheelhouse. That's why I'm interested in linguistics in general. But I couldn't think of that. Um, so um, kudos to Nicola. I think um, by doing so, by using the language to to represent our ideas toward rape and rape cultures in general is is such a really a really important topic to talk about because I think like we 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 condone to these cultures by by using the language and and keep keep the patterns going keep the repetitions of how we talk about rape and sexual assault going um and 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 by doing so we keep minimizing the result the effect um the severity of, of sexual assault and rape in general. Yeah, I think that that's such a great way to put it, Miles, um, kind of how the way we talk about it, the way it's represented, the way that we deny it and minimize it condones it. I think that that's exactly the, the perfect way to describe it. This really kind of hard thing to talk about because it's so ingrained in our society that it's hard for us to kind of open our eyes and see it because it's happening every day around us. It can, of course, include like glamorization of sexual violence as well. Um, maybe making, um, you know, it normal to badger for sex or, you know, keep going, 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 and then they will yield, you know, that kind of idea. Just, just again, not really understanding what enthusiastic consent looks like, all those different things. But I'd love to kind of hear more and move sh more into the language and linguistics piece to it. And I know that we have some specific examples here um, that I think Nicola, you brought up um, first and foremost. So do you want to talk a little bit about like passive voice and how it kind of contributes to this environment? Yeah, I think passive voice is very interesting when it comes to sexual assaults, because honestly, a lot of crimes that are related against violence uh, that are related to violence against women use passive voice. Um, you talk about she was beaten, she was raped, she was sexually assaulted. And although this is such a subtle change um, from saying someone sexually assaulted her, I think it makes a big difference because it kind of removes the perpetrator from the action and it becomes something that happened to someone rather than something that someone did to someone. It takes kind of that action out of it and it feels like something that just passively happened but especially with sexual assault i think that something that is missed so often in conversations is how that's a conscious decision that someone made that doesn't just happen and it's not this narrative of like things got out of hand and you know people try and like minimize it like that um, and i think it doesn't help when a lot of our conversations take the person out of that action so it's kind of removing the responsibility um, so that's kind of my thought with passive voice. It just makes it a very passive act with something that is very intentional. Yeah, when you were talking, I was thinking like, it's almost like they're describing like a natural disaster or something. This like other third party thing that just happens and you focus on the victim or survivor or the person that it happened to instead of the person actually doing the action. Um, how about you, Miles? Any thoughts on passive voice? 
Oh, definitely. Um, so, you know, it's an, a passive voice of voices are very interesting constructions, right? Like on um, language constructions and actually not every language has passive voice. I mean, there's, there's some sort of, um, manifestation and construction in, in a similar way. But but I think that the purpose of the passive voice in general in languages is to shift the focus of the, of the message to the action rather than focusing on who is doing the action. We, we shift the focus, we took out the agency of, of of who is doing the, the action of the subject in the in sentence, right? So like we want to focus more on the action, on the event, um, on the on the performance, on the verb, um, rather than focus on who initiate the action. So um, and a lot of times it took out it it we use passive boy in terms of trying to like saying things and talking about things that more neutral. Right, we, we kind of want to take away the the, the agency of, of the person who's doing the action. So in this case, just what Nicola was saying, you know, in, in, in the news or in a lot of times we talk about, oh, that woman was raped. Um, she was raped, blah, 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 or she was sexually assaulted by. Um, by using so, you kind of minimize and uh, give less power to the perpetrator, to the actions, to the subject. So in this case, when we're talking about rape, when we take away the, the, the subject who's doing the actions, right, we focus more on the, on, on the action. And, and a lot of times, as Nicola was saying, we, we minimize the, the severity, the, what's the word? Not the blame, but, but the reason or, or the, the like, you, we, we didn't put blame as much to the person who did the action the, on the rapist, on the perpetrators. Um, and I think that's kind of very subtly dangerous when we think about rape, because as Nicola was saying, it's a conscious choice, right? Who did the, who, who committed rape, who initiated the rape, made a conscious choice to do the action. But Definitely. when we're talking about rape, it's just like something just happened out of blue and we didn't focus on that. Yeah. So that's the yeah. first step that kind of like took away um the responsibilities from the perpetrator totally totally and while you were talking I was thinking like you know why do you think we do this um as a society and I don't think that there's like a correct answer but I'm curious why you think that news outlets and the way we talk about it what you know we choose passive voice it's it's interesting, right? Because like I don't I, I don't have a degree in journalism or anything like that. But when we're talking about news, we I think the, the premise is, is the idea is trying to like communicate facts, right? Without putting emotions or without taking sides to try to be neutral as gen as much as possible. And and you know, passive voice seems to be able to do that because it focuses on the event. But at the same times, right, we we minimize the severity, then we we took away, we take away the responsibility of of the perpetrators in that yeah. sense. And I think that's that's why in medias we use a lot of passive voice. We try to keep things neutral. But but when we're talking about rape, it's not necessarily neutral, right? There's someone who initiate the crime and someone who actually affect, got affected by this crime, right? Which result in trauma, which result in 
other many things. So it's not necessarily neutral, but so so I don't think it's it's fair. Totally. Uh, so when we talk about rape, to kind of like just focus on using the neutral constructions, well, sentence constructions. Yeah, and and I'm wondering if it's also people are kind of uncomfortable with the idea that someone does this to someone else, and so they choose to. If we do talk about it at all, it's almost like. Um, again, like this natural disaster that just occurs and it sucks, but we can't do anything about it. And I think that that's what's so frustrating from a prevention educator perspective, because we absolutely can do something about it. Um, But yeah, Nicola, you had a reaction. So I don't know if you wanted to jump in on anything. Um, I was just thinking about, you know, the perspective of using passive voice. I think is well-intentioned in a way because I think that people see it as a way to focus on the victims or, you know, because it says sometimes people will say, stop making the movies about the serial killers, make the movies about the victims. And I understand that as an approach and kind of centering the survivor's experience instead of the person who did this. And I think that when used by survivors, that can be empowering at times. But I think that the issue is you know, using linguistics can change attitudes. And so when from a widespread perspective, even though, yes, maybe we're trying to be well-intentioned by focusing on the survivor, it was like Miles is saying, you're taking the perpetrator out. So now we have this societal perspective on rape that's influenced by the way we talk about it, that's very focused on the survivor. And unfortunately, with the amount of victim blaming and the rape myths that we already have, it kind of leads to this thing of we're very focused on the survivor and we also have victim blaming. So it kind of comes together for this perspective that's only focused on the survivor's actions. That's kind of the way that I see it. But I do think at times it's well-intentioned. I just think that it's, it's a subtle but dangerous linguistic mistake to make at times. Totally. I appreciate you kind of empathizing a little bit there and saying like, I think that there could be a well-intentioned with that. And at the same time, it still has some damages that we were highlighting. I know that we were also um, talking a little bit about when we were planning this podcast that the use of euphemisms also can contribute. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yes, I I think euphemisms are very interesting as a, I kind of see it as a coping skill because I think we only use euphemisms when we feel really uncomfortable. We want to talk about something, but we're not sure how to do it. Um, But I think that specifically with sexual assault, I think this is the use of consensual language to describe something that's non-consensual. And, you know, I joked with you the one time about how, you know, with other crimes like robberies, no one ever says like, oh, last night someone came in and made me give an unwanted donation of my belongings to them. Like no one ever says that because you just wouldn't because you got robbed. That's just what you would say. And I think that with terms like unwanted sex or forcible sex, the problem that I see in that is that yes, it makes it easier for the person who's trying to describe it because they feel less uncomfortable. It removes the point of it, which was that something was taken and it wasn't the survivor who had a role. And I think that by using this term that sounds like it was a consensual act, it gives the survivor a role in what happened to them because it sounds like it's 
unwanted, but it's a mutual interaction because it's sex, where that's not what it is and that's not what describes it. Um, whereas if we say rape or sexual assault, that's something that happened to someone. So I think that euphemisms like that can be very dangerous. And I think you can even see it in examples like um, moving away from the term child pornography to child sexual abuse material, because pornography is seen as a very consensual term. That's something that consenting adults do. But then you add the word child, and now it's a bit confusing. It's the same with, they'll say, underage women. That's a child. You don't have to say underage women. There's a word for that. So I think that it's just a way of kind of making people more comfortable. But the problem is, is that you're then perpetuating these rape myths. So it's a long tangent. No, that wasn't a tangent at all. I'm so glad you brought up those other examples because that's such a great point to make where I do think that, yeah, it's it's a way for us to, again, this awful thing that happens, I think that this language almost makes us feel, um, I don't know, like coping with it, maybe just like slightly but really it's just perpetuating this misunderstanding of consent that you were mentioning. We talk all the time about how sexual violence really doesn't have anything to do with sex because sex is a different thing. This is really just a crime of power and control. And when we bring up things like unwanted sex, it's not the same thing we're talking. It's almost like an oxymoron. Those, those two things can't exist. Um, Miles, uh, euphemisms, do you have anything else you want to add to that? Yes. Um, so I think, you know, Nicola kind of like covers pretty much everything. And you also like mentioned the oxymoron kind of thing that like two things cannot happen at the same times. So we have the idea of, 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 um, different forms should have different functions because it's the, the, the idea of like efficiency, I think, I'm sorry, my linguistics professors out there because I, it's been a while, but I think the idea of, of you know, if we have different forms of languages, um, it should serve different functions because if we have one form, we, if we have multiple forms with one function, why? Why would we need a lot of those things, right? Um, like, for example, let's talking about silverwares, like, you know, utensils, you, you have different size of spoon, yes, but like they have different functions, because we don't necessarily need all of them at the same time. So um, similarly to languages, when we're talking about euphemism, we can talk about certain things in different ways, but we, we will we'll come to find that different words that describe the same thing that's not always 100% equal doesn't always kind of like, oh, 100% the same thing. So that's the case of euphemism. And euphemism, you know, the word itself already talks about, you know, make it more pleasant, right? Make it more um, pleasant to hear. Uh, I think like when we talk about rape, it's, it's a very sensitive subject. It's very uncomfortable. When we're talking about sex in general, it's already uncomfortable in society. We were told, even like talking about feelings, you know, um, in the past, we like, we don't talk about feelings. We don't talk about sex. It's a taboo thing. It's very uncomfortable. Um, add it on to the non-consensual act, physical act, right? That, that's also even more uncomfortable with it. So I think like the purpose of using euphemism, like unwanted sex or underage woman, um, child pornography or something like that is is 
unconsciously minimizing the severity, obscuring obscuring the severity and responsibility of, of, of the actions or the perpetrator's responsibilities as well. Um, again, language is, is a powerful tool that we communicate. And a lot of times it's not always a conscious decision. It's not always affect, a, affect us right away, but the more we're using it, the more it gets in into deeper conscious level or even unconscious. And, and that's how we care, keep carrying the messages out. Um, so when we're talking about unwanted sex, we, we put one things that can be regarded as something that pleasurable, right? For, you know, pleasurable. And when we put unwanted, it's, it's kind of doesn't make sense Right? Are you are you saying that you don't want that in the beginning, but once you had it, you satisfy? If that makes sense, it's it's it sounds really wrong. Bizarre. Yeah, wrong and bizarre and weird and shouldn't be at the same um, sentence. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I really appreciate you breaking out, um, breaking down the linguistics aspect of it. I think that that's what it can be really hard to talk about because it is kind of like this implicit thing that's going on, which is kind of rape culture, right? It's, it's this thing that we're not seeing, but it's around us. And now that we're like bringing it to consciousness, it's really, (laughs) it's really difficult to um, really pinpoint it. But I think that you both are really hitting the nail on the head there. Um, I know that other examples that we brought up was just minimizing rape in general. And we also brought up victim blaming and then perpetuating myths as well. Well, one last thing I want to say about the euphemisms. Um, I think it's interesting that Miles was talking kind of about the function of it. And I think it is just a thing of being uncomfortable, but in a way it sanitizes it. And I feel like it makes it, not violent. And I think that that's the thing that's missing is so many people don't see rape or sexual assault as a form of violence. So by taking that out, now it's just kind of emphasizing to people that no, it's not violence. It's just unwanted sex and kind of minimizing. So I don't know if this maybe goes into minimizing or if it goes with the euphemisms, but either way, it's just makes it so much less violent than it is. Because even if rape isn't outwardly when you look at it physically violence it's still an act of violence so i think that that language just kind of takes that element out of it um but the other one that i was going to talk about was the victim blaming um i don't know if this is a linguistics thing really but from a psychological perspective i think that's interesting because of kind of like the just world fallacy like they must have done something to make this happen because if not then that's something that can happen to me out of the blue and people can't really deal with that uncertainty. So it's, no, she was too drunk. So if I don't get too drunk, then it won't happen to me. That's kind of the implication. And so by victim blaming, it kind of gives people this sense of security because if they don't do the things that the victim did, then they'll be okay. When that's not the reality of it, but I think it is interesting that even saying things like that, and I guess this is linguistics, but can make people feel more secure in themselves and kind of the safety of the world around them. Yeah. Like they have more control over this thing. It's very interesting because with passive voice, we almost talk about it as if this thing that we can't control um, as a society that we can't actually fight against because um, it's this other thing, even though it is caused by someone else. So on the one hand, we have this idea 
But on the other hand, to cope with this idea that we can't control um, whether or not we're, you know, sexually assaulted um, by our actions, we choose to blame the victim to say, well, they did X, Y, and Z. And so I will not do X, Y, and Z. And therefore I'm protected when that, you know, they've done a lot of research on um, prevention and they find that, you know, really what helps prevent sexual violence is um, not victim blaming, (laughs) but actually being an active bystander. And when you see things, call it out and helping to protect each other. And then Fortunately, we don't have a lot of data on um, perpetrators of sexual violence because that's obviously the population that we would want to intervene with. Um, But they do know that with the active bystander training that that does help. Um, So that's that's good. But it it is very interesting. Yeah. um, Why we victim blame as a society. So. I invite anyone who's listening to if you're ever having this thought or you feel yourself maybe blaming the victim or any of these other things, just kind of take a moment and be a little more mindful of it and then reframe um, and avoid that, especially if someone's disclosing to you. So so I think like it's really interesting to, to kind of differentiate what we talked about, right? Like passive voice euphemism. Um, and I think like we can differentiate the form and the functions of it, of languages when we talk about linguistics, right? So like passive voice and euphemism is clearly a form, right? It's, it's, it's a certain things that we use, um, a construction language that we use in order to, to achieve something, right? And, and the minimizing rape, um, victim blaming, perpetuate myth, this is all the function of the way we use language to do that, right? So basically if we use passive voice, um with let's say you know victim blaming for example it can achieve by if you read the news right you can actually probably read the narratives of like oh what the victim has been doing prior to rape but when it got to the events they instead of like using saying like oh the victim was at the bar drinking until midnight or whatever you know have like a two bottles of wine or whatever and when it comes to talking about rape, if the, the journalist or the, the news writer or someone shift the construction of language into like, into passive voice, for example, right? The, the, the use of language, the way we construct the narrative in, in, in news or in how we tell the stories can really affect and achieve the, the goals of minimizing rape, victim blaming and perpetuating myth. So, so in linguistics um, and in a lot of social science, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a field called discourse analysis or like critical discourse analysis where we um, looking at the, the, the language use as a whole in a texture, in a textual contents, not necessarily only on sentences. It's like the, in the relationship between sentences in their paragraphs or in a story. And, and, and there's a lot of research in this sense where they use language to kind of achieve certain goals, like persuasive, you know, on political speech or news rhetorics or something like that. Um, so this is something that like some of the linguists or discourse analysts or critical discourse analysts has been studying for years um, about this. Uh, so, so when we're talking about language and, and rape, right? 
uh, language and linguistics and stuff like that, we we kind of have to differentiate that passive voice and euphemism. It's also it's almost like a form that we use to achieve certain functions or or goals, such as minimizing rape, victim blaming, perpetuating myths. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for breaking that down. I think that that's such a great example too. If you're ever reading an article and it shifts from the active voice to the passive voice, how that is shifting the blame as we as we move forward to and and yeah that's such a great example um so i'm gonna definitely pay attention um you know and see when the author or writer unconsciously even um shifts into these you know using passive voice or why i think they might be using a euphemism here instead of calling it what it is um um, before we jump into the next topic, Emily, I, I just want to say, like, I found actually an article, a research article, um, which uh, the, 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 the name of the article set name is, excuse me, telling it like it isn't obscuring perpetrator responsibility for violent crime. So this is actually like a research article that came out, I think it's in 2004 by Linda Coates and Alan Wade. Um, Linda was basically a professor in university in Canada and Alan Wade is, is a therapist in a private practice and you know discourse analyst. So this is something that like really, you know, speak about like language and, 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 and violence and victims of crime and stuff like that. So, so I can get more into that later on, but you know, there, there's some studies out there that looking at linguistics and and how we represent and how we construct the idea of of certain things out there for sure yeah how it kind of constructs a larger narrative that is the environment that we're in i love that title so, so that's just, great just to kind of like sums up right they said that um uh, the papers show how psycholo psychologizing attributions are combined in use with other linguistics device to one, conceal violence, to mitigate perpetrators' responsibilities, three, conceal victims' resistant, and four, blame or pathologize victims. So there's definitely some things that are out there that we use language to do to achieve all those things right to kind of like shift the responsibility of the perpetrators and and victim blaming and this is what all we've been saying we just like a, a glimpse of it but there's a the whole study out there that looking into the relationship between language and 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 the idea of, of revolves in mental health for example or even rape yeah i i'm so glad that article is there so um Definitely will take a read um, and anyone listening that wants to dive a little bit more, that's a great resource. I can type it into the uh, description there for people to find. Um, you know, there could be a few people or anyone listening who's might be thinking, you know, these are just words though. Do they actually have power? So I wanted to know your, you know, um, opinions on why it's important to change the way we actually talk about sexual assaults in American culture, I'll say specifically. Um, okay, so as a linguist, you know, we there's a there's a theory called a hypothesis called of linguistics relativity, or you know, back in the days we known as Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which or Wolf hypothesis. Um, you know, it's it talks about 
the idea, the principle, the idea is that the structure of language affects its speaker's worldview and cognitions. And thus people's perception are relative to their spoken languages, um, spoken language. So, so this idea, you know, um, linguists up here in Wolf, I think they're a sociolinguist. Um, again, I do apologize for my linguistics professors back in the days, but you know, it's been a while. But um, the idea is that like the way we use languages is, 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 is derived or, you know, have a relationship, a close relationship of how we see the world and how we think. Um, and um, there's, of course, there's a strong version and weak version. The strong version is basically a linguistic determinism where it said like the language determines how you see the world. Um, and 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 the weak version is basically they influence each other. Um, so so there's a, this concept out there, right? Um, and if you think about it, our cognitions is the same. It's we 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 have this cognition to to process language, to understand things. We use language to to learn things, to to understand things. So it's it's very possible possible that language and mind is really interrelated how that's a whole different discussion and different stories right but but it's definitely related um so with that said why it's important for us to kind of shift the way we talk about rape is that as mentioned before unconsciously when we talk about um rape or other things there's a subtle message that we communicate as well rather than just just the explicit messages right there's an implicit as i've said that unwanted sex and rape, if you hear those two words, your reaction to those two words are two different things. The severity might be two different things. So the more we conscious and consciously use language enough and speak about bathing the way it is, our mind will unconsciously see the event as it is rather than minimizing the effects of it. Um, so that's kind of how I, I view why it's important for us to, to, to be mindful of how we communicate about rape. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Miles. Nicola, would you agree? I definitely agree. I love Miles's wonderful linguistics perspectives. <laughs> I'm learning so much. Um, I think one of the easiest examples I think of to kind of explain how important it is, is if you think back to a time when maybe your self-talk was super negative, or maybe you were in a bad mood, so you were speaking really negatively about everything that day. If you think about the way you feel after maybe two days of speaking really negatively, or even more so being around someone who's super negative, you start to feel very drained and you start to feel very negative yourself. And it's kind of like the cycle. And so that's just like a very, very small example of how even with silly things that can affect you and that can affect your day, just being around someone negative. And it kind of reminds me of the idea of narrative therapy, which is very often used with survivors of sexual assault and trauma because you can change the way that you see what happened to you and what you see when you think of yourself. Um, and kind of identity work by just changing the language that you use to describe these things. And I mean, I can't do a better explanation than Miles about the importance, but I think 
even just looking at everyday examples of how language affects our attitudes about things can be, you know, once you start paying attention to that, you can really see what difference it makes. And so it's no different for something like sexual assault. Yeah, I, I love hearing that uh, Miles's linguistic brain as well. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's a great example, I think, Nicola, as far as the idea of how um, it's kind of complicated where our thoughts influence the way that we speak. And then the way that we speak can also in turn influence our thoughts. And then of course, um, then from there we manifest whatever that is as a society and as a culture. And so I think that it may seem like these subtle things, but they have really big domino effects. Um, I think it's super important that we break down myths, for example, um, that we avoid victim blaming statements, that we avoid the passive voice, things like that. Um, you know, another piece to this is how we talk about rape in a legal context. Um, so if, for example, a survivor goes to through the criminal justice system, I should say, um, what are some of those legal terms that they use that could potentially be triggering for survivors? Um, I think one of the biggest ones is accuser. Um, they use that a lot in uh, cases where there's rape or sexual assault. Um, mostly in the media, maybe not so much in the legal system itself, um, but kind of saying, you know, this is uh, Harvey Weinstein's accuser, you know, and it's like, you would never say that about, you know, someone gets robbed and you're like, oh, they're a robbery accuser. That's just not, they just, <laughs> just is what it is. So I think that that's a little invalidating because it kind of puts a lot of emphasis on the whole innocence until guilty whereas with other crimes people don't tend to use that kind of linguistic cue to emphasize that um i think it goes for probably within the legal system is the alleged victim instead of just saying oh this is the victim of the crime and things like that and in extreme cases there have been word bans on the word rape or sexual assault in trials um, I think it was around, I know in 2007, 2009, there were kind of big cases with that. Um, but because those times were seen as prejudicial, um, unnecessarily, which you don't really see. I know people try to kind of bring that over to other crimes, but it's a lot harder to do that because it doesn't make as much sense because there isn't that kind of victim blaming with other crimes most of the time. So, but I think that just shows how even then, that shows how important the language is because they saw someone saying rape as too prejudicial and it's going to change attitudes. So it shows kind of how important language is, but that's not the direction that we wanted to go in with that. No, I, I think that that's such a good point in showing that, see how important it is that um, how powerful language can be. There's obviously an effect that it can have. And at the same time, I think it's also important to recognize the hypocrisy of it, where in other crimes, we just don't do the same thing. You know, we don't say alleged um, robbing victim. I don't know. You know what I mean? Victim of, 
you know, unwanted, what was it? Unwanted donation. Um, I think that that the fact that it's so ridiculous that we can laugh at it shows how, um, how deeply rooted this rape culture really is. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that Nicola brought that up, right? Like allergic victims or accuser or anything like that. But interestingly, right, when we talk about allergic victims, right, it, it gives it minimizing like, oh, you're just allergic saying that you were victims or something like that. But when it comes to like <coughs> a court, and talking about the perpetrators, for example, the, the the article that I the research article that I mentioned earlier, they they the researchers look at court um, orders like court um, report. So basically, they have everything typed out, right? And they look at the, like the way language was used. So one of the one of the example, one of the example um, when they said they they refer to the perpetrator by using the word accused. You know, use the word accuse a lot, where where maybe we use alleged victims or or accuser, right? So so again, just the two words of accuser and accused. You, when you hear that, you give a sense of like, oh, accuse accuser, you you what? You're a crying baby trying to like kind of report things that not really happening. And accused, oh my god, poor guy, you're you're the you're the guy who just like got accused. You know what I mean, like. Those kind of subtle thing is really important. Even just saying that, you can actually see your own reactions of like when you hear the word accuser and accused, when the reality is the victims is the one, you know, the the perpetrator actually initiate the action and may have this traumatic events happen to the victims. But now in court system, legal system, this perpetrator seems to be the one who seems to like the, use the words accused seems to like shift the perpetrator to be the victim. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think that, and it's hard because I know that it's a totally different realm in the mm-hmm. legal system. And I'm definitely not a legal expert at all. Me neither. <laughs> but I but, do think that that's important what you brought up. Yeah. I think like it's, you know, we, I don't, I don't think we intend to this podcast to kind of change the whole world, but I think like we brought up some, some important things that we should talk about, right. To kind of like keep the conversation going. And of course, as a linguist, we, I know that we all know that language is not perfect and we cannot really capture everything um, with languages. So of course, language has to loopholes and stuff like that, but it's, it's definitely worth thinking and, you know, kind of ruminating and thinking about how we use language when it comes to talking about sexual assault and rape. Yeah. And analyzing it too, like, oh, what, what is this serving? Um, what is this contributing to? Um, I know that we also talked a little bit about words that we use for those who've experienced sexual violence and Nicola, I saw that you unmuted. So I don't know if you had something else you wanted to piggyback off on. Um, I did. It was about the legal system. I wanted, and obviously I'm not a lawyer either, so I'm not trying to (laughs) come across like, I know anything about the legal system, but I do think it's interesting kind of looking at it from the legal perspective. I understand why maybe in court you have to say the accused or the alleged victim because of the whole, you know, innocence or proven guilty, but that doesn't make it less triggering for the survivors going through court. So I think 
while we can, you can have both, you can both understand that that may be the terminology that's needed until I don't know what the compromise is, but maybe that's the language that you need to use right now. But you can also have that kind of analysis and understanding of why that's used and have those conversations along with that of why that's triggering and why that might be minimizing along with it. That's such a good point. And that's why I always like to remind um, anyone listening and survivors and, 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 and victims out there that they do have a right to a victim advocate. And so I think that that is a wonderful resource um, for those who do want to go through the criminal justice system, for those who believe that that is part of their healing journey and it is healing for them. Um, I know that the VSC, again, we don't, we're not legal advocates. Um, however, uh, our advocates can accompany you to court. Uh, they can be there as that emotional support. Cause I, I do want to validate that it can be a very, very triggering process and the language can be part of it. So, um, and it, for those listening that aren't in the central Florida area, you should have a local center, uh, a rape crisis center, and they should be able to point you in the right direction as far as getting a victim advocate to join you. Um, if that is something that you're interested in speaking on kind of the, the words that I just used actually, which are, you know, what we kind of use for those experience who have experienced sexual assault. So I hear a lot of the words survivor, victim, thriver. So how do you feel about these words? I have a lot of thoughts about these words. (laughs) So I apologize if this kind of goes on, but I just think it's a very interesting um, concept that there are these different, and something Miles said before kind of, I feel like, explains this really well is that you can have multiple words for something but they're not always going to mean the same thing even though they're describing the same thing and i think there's two perspectives because there's obviously the person themselves describing themselves and then there's someone else describing the victim survivor or survivor and ultimately i think that it should be up to the survivor to decide on what they like best and i don't think you know no one's going to be like offended if (laughs) survive it instead of a victim um some people hate the term victim because they feel like it you know minimizes their agency um other people love the term victim more because it kind of and i think miles also mentioned something about this it shifts the focus so instead of being about this is something that i got through i survived that it's about you know someone made this conscious choice to do something to me and yes, you are moving on and yes, you're thriving, but you want to focus on the fact that that was a decision someone else made. So I think that sometimes there's a different focus and it's not necessarily meant to minimize someone's agency, but it's kind of what you want to go with independently yourself. Um, usually I think survivors is the more like general term that people go with because it's seen as empowering. But I think for some people that can also be I don't want to say it backfires, but I think that constantly telling people you're a survivor, you're a survivor, you're thriving, when maybe they don't feel like they're thriving, or, you know, it's so much work healing that sometimes it feels like it's minimizing the negative, and it's putting this, like, too much empowerment in a way, and in social work, we have, like, the concept of self-determination, and kind of, you should be able to decide things for yourself, because you know yourself best, Um, and I think that 
letting people decide what time they want without having kind of any condescension to them about the time that they choose is most important because if someone wants to identify as a victim and that's helpful for their healing at the end of the day that's all that matters and i think that from both perspectives both can be minimizing of some aspect of healing and maybe someone wants to choose a different word every five minutes but that's their choice and it should be okay either way I love that. And I wanted to see Miles, you know, with your experience with the the clients that you work with as well. Um, any other thoughts about these words? Yeah, I think like Nicola kind of like sums everything up as well. Like I felt like those two words has very powerful connotation and powerful meaning behind it, right? And there, I know there's a movement where we want you don't want to use the word victims and use the word survivors. And of course, it, it gives the, the 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 you know people who experience um, trauma has more sense of empowerment or or agency or anything like that. But at the same time, if you think about it, and I think we talked about about this a little bit um, prior to recording, is that like um, if you think about it, when we work it, when when you work with um, survivors or victims, right, we want to empower them to take their own power back and all that thing, but if we um, put too much pressure, right, to, to the clients on, on to empower them to take the control, it, it sounds really overwhelming for them, right? This is not the choice that I make. This is not the choice that I want to go through. I don't want to feel like I'm a survivor. So I just want to be not, I don't want to use the word no, but I just want to be like living my life without going through this this is put upon me without my consent, this is put upon me without my power. And now why do I have to be the one who needs to be the survivors? Because, you know, I think the clients are, are at different stage with healing, as Nicola was saying. So I think, of course, I think um, it's better to meet your clients and meet you know, the person where they're at and ask them uh, if they feel related to either words, right? If they feel, do you feel like you're a survivor or do you feel like you're a victim? Um, if they say, I feel like a victim, then you get a more sense of where they are in their healing journey. So instead of like trying to push them to take control or to like really empower them, it can be overwhelming for them, right? They can feel like I'm just trying to get by right now. I don't want to even think about like take my own control because this, this wasn't my choice. Yeah. If they're identified with survivors, great. Like you can have a sense that they feel they can see the hope, they they're hopeful about the futures, they want to, you know, do something to thrive. And I'm not saying that like people who identify themselves as a victim doesn't want that, you know what I mean? But like I felt like those words can mean different things to different people. Um, and I see, you know, both good and bad sides from those from those words. Uh um, I think we talk about that as well some sometimes people use victim because i feel the sense of they might feel the sense of empowerment more because focus on what happened to them and they're just like you know what that happened to me it's not my choice and i'm gonna move forward with my own choice or or something like that because i for me as a therapist sometimes i i have a icky feeling of the word survivor sometimes um sometimes sometimes you know it depends on on who i'm working with and where am i where i am with the client in the process 
Yeah, I love what Miles was saying. I think it kind of made me think about how the victims, victims survive the thriving model in a way I feel like is indirectly approaching a problem and it doesn't actually solve anything only because I think at its core, it's trying to address how much that victimization is overwhelming someone's identity. And so in trying to fix that, we've kind of come up with these different terms for how much it overwhelms your identity. But in a way, we're just giving people other identities to latch onto, but you're still centering the victimization. And so that was kind of the idea of using person-first language is saying this is someone who was sexually assaulted or this is someone who has experienced sexual assault instead of making it your identity because in a way you know people will talk about like oh they come from like a victim mindset the problem isn't really that they feel victimized because they were it's that the other parts of their identity are being suffocated out of their lives because that's the only thing they can focus on which is understandable because that's a traumatic event and i think that sometimes with this model it can become condescending to people who can't yet move on to bringing back those other parts of their identity by creating these categories where, you know, and it makes it feel linear. Like you, you're going to be a thriver one day, but maybe you won't. Maybe you'll be a thriver tomorrow afternoon and then you'll never be a thriver again. It just depends on your healing journey and it's healing's not linear. And I think in a way, my opinion is that it should just be a model based on, you know, where you are reintegrating your identity back into itself and reconnecting rather than being a thing of how do you label yourself? I think that that's so powerful. What you said, I think, um, I'm always, uh, I'm not a huge fan of boxes and I feel like this is kind of just shoving people in boxes. Um, and I also recognize it as a tool of empowerment in how, you know, meeting the person where they're at, you know, this is how I want to identify and this is how I am. And so I think that that can be a a wonderful tool. Um, And also pushing it on someone is very, can be kind of setting, like you mentioned, but also kind of doing the opposite of healing from trauma, which is something that happened that took away their agency and took away their power and control and by pushing labels on this person, it's doing the same thing. Um, so yeah, I, I, I just, yeah, I appreciate the conversation specifically on this. And let, I am going to add one more thing, right? Like when we talk about like healing is not linear, right? It's not linear. So, so by, I think like it reminds me of toxic positivity in a way that like, you know, you kind of want to shift from the mentality of victims to survivors, but you know, sometimes healings mean you recognize both and you recognize when you are, which and how you deal with it, you know, because at the same time, you don't want to kind of invalidate that part of yourself, but you want to incorporate um, those different parts of yourself. I'm talking internal family system here. Um, but anyways, like, you know, we, we want to incorporate like work in, in, in tandem together and, and, and recognize that, oh, this experience happened to me. It informed me as a person, but I'm not going to let it take control over my life throughout my life. You know, like kind of like figure out the way to live with that, because at the end of the day, we cannot deny that this 
this this event happens to you, right? But how are we going to live with it? How we can incorporate that part of ourselves, either victims or survivors or thriver or or whatever it is, um, into ourselves and 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 moving forward without having either one of them take control too much, right? Like everything has to be in moderation and, and recognizing that it is okay to be, to feel like I'm a victim sometimes and it is, is okay that I feel like I'm thriving sometimes. Um, so I think that's the most important thing. So thank you, Nicola, for saying that. But I think that's a, that's a whole point. I think, you know, in, like with every kinds of modality or intervention or theory and therapy, do I, I feel like we shouldn't use it into the extreme, right? Like find, find certain things, find certain spot that this might fit, you know, and be more integrative and synthetic synthesis, or I mean, not synthetic, like synthesis of, of the whole concept is, is what we strive for, yeah. Something that Miles said, anything as usual, um, I think, it, healing is not linear but i think something that people miss is also that healing is not fun it's not this like fun time and i think that sometimes survivor kind of sounds like those like inspirational movies about this you know woman who got through it and she's living her best life now and sometimes that's just not what it looks like and i think that in a way it may make someone feel like they can't have those negative parts but they're going to have those negative parts of healing and it's exhausting and it's not fun and I feel like it makes it sound inspirational, but it doesn't feel inspirational living it. And so I think that that disconnect can sometimes be a little overwhelming for people, but then someone who doesn't like the term victim, because then maybe that feels minimizing them is kind of stuck because now they have nothing. And that's where I think the person first language kind of comes in because it's kind of what Miles was saying is you can't ignore that something happened. So you are someone who experienced sexual assault but that's not the only thing that you are. You, you're still a person who has other qualities and other attributes and other life experiences that are just as important as that. And they don't have to be drowned out by someone else's choice to do something to you. One of the first episodes I've ever done um, was actually talking about these specific terms and it had Brandy on, our um, lead therapist. And she said, and I'll never forget, um, she said, you know, these people are people, we can't forget about that. And yeah, we talk a lot about like labels and all that stuff. And, and you all kind of bringing up like, there's holistic identities here that are all intermixing. And some days we feel this way, and some days we feel that way. And I think when we come at it from that perspective of not putting people in little boxes and little compartments, we can kind of holistically look at the entire experience that is a human life, that healing, if it doesn't feel this way, doesn't mean that it's not happening. Um, all those different things. So yeah, I really appreciate this really important discussion that we're having. Um, just as kind of final points here, you know, there are, I feel like there's some unhelpful things that we as supporters can say to survivors and victims. So I wanted to kind of ask what those unhelpful things we can say, what are things we should avoid saying um, to people who have experienced violence? 
I think um, Miles mentioned toxic positivity, and that's kind of, if I had to give one time for what not to say, I would say that. I also just think that, you know, every statement has to come with balance. So I think, obviously, you don't want to take someone's agency away. But specifically with sexual assault, you don't want to give them too much agency in that situation in a way that feels like they could have or should have done more. So I often think about coercion with this. And I know we did a podcast on coercion and kind of discussed this, but you know, saying things like, oh, you're like, you're so strong, like, you know, you should get up and leave in the future or something. I don't know. I mean, that's a terrible thing to say. No one should say that, but kind of giving too much agency to, you know, imply that they could have done more to prevent it. I think that sometimes it's well-intentioned and it kind of goes into toxic positivity. You want to empower someone so much that it makes them feel like they should have been stronger or they should have done more. So I think that anything like that isn't helpful and anything that kind of makes it into this like overly inspirational like situation I just feel like it does more harm than good in a lot of ways so I think just kind of being realistic about it but being supportive and understanding where someone's coming from is more helpful than trying to just kind of I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for but kind of build them up in a way that's not real or kind of yeah like in an inauthentic way and almost yeah. like shoving the pain under the rug and just like let's go let's move forward you're good you're stronger because of this it's almost more about the supporter than because they just don't want to uncomfortably talk about what happened miles is there anything that is unhelpful that we should not say <laughs> Oh, definitely. Um, so yeah, definitely toxic positivity, right? And um, when when something like this happened, or someone like shared their story to you, you know, um, I I always I think like my the the, the episodes that I did with Rav, Rav says pretty nicely. Sometimes you don't just have you don't have to say anything. Just be curious and ask how can you be of help. Um, you know, the, the person who experienced that know, you know, trust them that they know their own story, trust them that they're the expert in their healing journey. Sometimes they're not the expert, but they know what they want, um, you know, from a people. And I think like we as a society as a whole, we're taught to feel uncomfortable with emotions and we want to fix it because we feel uncomfortable with it. We're hearing our friends cry and we want to make them stop crying because we don't want to hear it. We feel uncomfortable with it. We might feel sad because we don't know what to do or we might not liking it. So usually people trying to jump into trying to fix them, fix things for them, right? But I think, so don't do that. Um, I think like you, you kind of, sit there with them and asking how you can be of help and be a, an ear for them. And if you want to do anything, just maybe trying to help them find resources that might felt like, you know, kind of, you know, come go to therapy or anywhere that they feel comfortable talking. Because when you push like, oh, it's okay. Things going to get better. Things going to get better. How do you know things going to get better for them? You know, it might, it might not. Of course, in 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 the in the ideal situation, it will, right? But it might not, or it might take time. So, you know, saying something like that, or inspirational quote, or 
other people had worse, you know, or anything like that is, 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 is something to be avoided. Um, the key is if you don't know what to say, don't say it. And just asking questions of like, how can I help? How can I be of help? I hear you. I'm here. If you want to talk, you know, I'll be here in here and I'll, I want to help. Let me know if I can be of any, any help, you know. But if you don't know anything to say, that's probably the, the good way to go with it, right? Um, so, you know, I, understand, I, I hear you. I'm here with you. I want to support you. Mm -hmm. um, how can I be of help? Rather than trying to fix things or make them stop talking. Yeah, it's like invalidating the pain that they went through by just kind of saying it'll be okay. Um, and then, of course, it's empty promises that we can't promise. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I love that you brought um, some other like positive things that we can say. Um, and I wanted to also ask as kind of a final question. So you're we talking about how we can kind of shift how we talk to, you know, one-on-one -on -one with, with individuals, but how do you think we can combat, you know, this problem of language contributing to rape culture as a society? What are some things that we can do and be more mindful of? I think that's definitely being more conscious and deliberate about the language that we choose to use. Um, and I think, even for if you think of agencies and professionals, this is still a growing area. Like most people are still say child pornography. So that's something that's very new and still has to be updated. But I think that making conscious decisions to use certain, you know, sentence constructs or use certain terms instead of others. Um, you know, you talk to someone and they hear you say it like that. If enough people are saying it, that's how things change. And if you think about how language changes over time, enough people have to start doing it and you hear it and you get used to it and then you know things change so i think each individual kind of making that conscious decision to be aware of their language is really the way to go about it and kind of focusing more on who is perpetrating these acts and putting the responsibility where it is using language and I think like, yeah, Nicola has a, a great point, right? I think like, you know, we cannot really change language and the way we talk about things like in a night, at, in one night or in one day, right? It, it changes over time. It's it's never that the case. But I think um, besides be conscious, being really mindful, be intentional about it is also kind of keep the conversation going, right? Keep the conversation going. Like if, if we, for example, if we didn't, Nicola didn't come up with this idea, um we don't probably don't think about it right so like kind of like want to pay, pay attention to the language we use pay attention to the language the media use pay attention to the language that your peer use your family use and people around you use and 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 you know find a group of people who you feel comfortable enough who share the same interests and keep the conversation going i think that's you know make make waves make noise about it and and that's you know that's kind of how any changes can happen, right? We 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 start as a really small um, shaking the you know we might shake our table, but the more we shake things, it's gonna make more impact and grow into a bigger thing. So so yeah, keep the conversation going, pay attention, be mindful, and and keep it rolling. I love it. Yeah, the ripple effects, right? Um, 
you know, I think that that's a wonderful place to sign off. Before I do, is there anything you'd like to add? Um, is there something everyone can do today to help or anything you'd like to say before we sign off? Um, the only thing I would say is, this is, you know, just like the general statement always is kind of to survive is that there is help that you can get. And that if you feel like a line has been crossed, then it probably has and that it is um, valid and encouraged for you to seek out resources that can help you. Um, because you deserve to be believed and to heal. And that would be probably the only thing that I feel like I want to add. I love that. Yeah. Everyone deserves the right to peace and happiness and healing. Um, so I think oh, that's a great place to sign off. So thank you for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. So the VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims and survivors of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so much, Nicola and Miles, for joining me today. Thank you. 